0: Jeremiah chapter 36, Uh, the best way to do it is to just jump right in these first few verses, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day that I spoke to you from the days of Josiah even to this day, It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversaries, uh, hear all the adversities, excuse me, which I purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. The book of Jeremiah is not strictly chronological. You don't begin at chapter 1 and end at chapter 52 and follow a continuous story. It jumps around in the chronology. So you kind of have to take each section as it is, as far as it fits in the place of Jeremiah's career as a prophet. Jeremiah chapter 36 gives us a definite marking point. Did you see it there? Verse 1, it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Now what's interesting about this particular time, this was at or very near the first Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. When the Babylonians conquered the kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem, they didn't do it all at once. They did it in three successive waves, and the final wave obliterated the city and burned it to the ground. But the first wave, here in this fourth year of Jehoiakim, came, and what they did was they deposed the present king, they took a lot of treasure, and they took the best and the brightest away from Jerusalem, including Daniel and his associates. That's the setting for this particular prophecy, that time period. And what did God tell them to do? Again, it was either at or near that time. It could have been right before. It could have been right after, at or near that time. Notice what God told them to do. Now verse two. Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you. God commanded Jeremiah to not only speak his prophecies, but to write them down. And this was to include all the prophetic sayings that he had given up to that point. Notice verse two, from the day that I spoke to you. Now perhaps these were already in some kind of written form and what God was commanding Jeremiah to do was to compile them or to restate them. Maybe there was just some of the divine work of the Holy Spirit to where he could remember perfectly word for word a prophecy that he had given a few years back. We don't know exactly how it worked, but God wanted him to compile His prophetic work that had been going on for many years up to that time. I'm just going to estimate off the top of my head. Maybe I should have researched this a little better. We're talking about 15, 20 years of Jeremiah's prophetic ministry already underway. And this, this was supposed to be written about halfway through his entire ministry. Why? Look at verse 3. It may be that the house of Judah will hear. God commanded Jeremiah to do this so that the people could be appealed upon to repent. When God announced judgment was coming, the desired for response was for people to repent. When God doesn't announce judgment, he doesn't do it just to bring bad news. He does it to invite repentance from his people so that he may actually withhold his judgment. And I find it fascinating that God thought that perhaps having it written down might help with this. Maybe it would make it more firm, more established. Maybe it would bring a reminder of the prophetic word. Maybe it could be consulted again and again. But towards this end of drawing the people to repentance, God said, take a scroll and write it down. Has everybody got that? Now verse four. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah. And Baruch wrote on the scroll of a book at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch saying, I am confident, I I am confined, excuse me, I cannot go into the house of the Lord. You go therefore and read from the scroll which you have written at my instruction the words of the Lord in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of fasting. And it shall also, you shall also read them in the hearing of all Judah who come From their cities. It may be that they will present their supplications before the Lord, and everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and the fury that the Lord has pronounced against his people. And Baruch the son of Neriah did according to all the words that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading from the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. So, what did God command him to do? Now, Jeremiah was not actually going to do the writing of the scroll. He was going to dictate it to his friend and associate, Baruch. And Baruch was going to take it and write it down. Baruch was, by trade, a scribe. We're not really accustomed with the trade of a scribe today, but in the ancient world, scribes are very important. What they were were professional writers. And it didn't mean that people who weren't scribes couldn't write. By the way, just as a little aside literacy was much more common in the ancient world than many people suppose. Do you know how we know this from an archaeological um, perspective? Graffiti. Now, I'm not talking about ancient times of Israel, although it would be interesting to study that, but when you take a look at Greek and especially Roman ruins, there's a lot more graffiti than you would think. And friends, people don't write graffiti unless they can write it and other people can read it. So many people in the ancient world, many more than you would expect, could read and write, but they couldn't read and write nicely. And that's what a scribe did. A scribe was very well trained to write things out properly and technically well. That's what Baruch was. He was a scribe. So he was going to be Jeremiah's helper with this. It's really sort of wonderful. There was a long relationship between the scribe and the prophet. 17 years later, when Jerusalem was about to finally fall, Jeremiah left Jerusalem and went to Egypt for refuge. Baruch went with him. This could have been the beginning of a very long friendship. Now, verse 6, notice. He says, you go, therefore, and read from the scroll. Jeremiah was confined, probably not imprisoned. The idea here is that he was probably banned from the temple mount. Probably the priests got sick and tired of Jeremiah doing his thing up on the Temple Mount. and They said, you can't come here anymore. I'm banned from the Temple Mount. You're not Baruch. So we'll write out my prophecies. You go and read it out publicly. By the way, don't you find it fascinating? I do. That the prophet didn't need to be present for the words to have power. For the words to work. Ladies and gentlemen. Jeremiah does not need to be present here tonight to read his prophecies for us for us to benefit from him. Especially because Jeremiah couldn't speak English and we couldn't understand his Hebrew here tonight. But, but do you get the point I'm making? God's word did not depend upon the human author for its power. Jeremiah could say, here is the prophecy, you go deliver it, Baruch, it will have power and maybe it can turn the people's heart to repentance. That was the whole idea. Verse seven, it may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord and everyone will turn from his evil way. This was the desired result. Apparently, I gotta say, it's a little bit fuzzy here in the transition between the first part of the chapter and the second part of the chapter, but apparently, Baruch did this in the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign, Now look at what's going to happen next, starting at verse 9. Now it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord to all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem. Then Baruch read from the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord, in the chamber of Gemara, the son of Shaphan, the scribe, in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the hearing of all the people. Okay, a couple things to notice. In the fourth year, they wrote out a scroll. He was commanded to read it. Apparently he did it. Now we have this done in the fifth year. Some people think that this is actually the same occasion and it was actually much later that Baruch did it. I'm more inclined to think that this was two different occasions. That he read it in the fourth year and he came back and he read it again in the fifth year. Because if there's anything I know about the way that human beings work, and if there's anything I know about the way that we learn the Word of God, repetition is essential. You got to repeat it. It's been said that the three most important principles in learning are repetition, repetition, repetition it's just the way it is we need this we need to have things repeated so i'm more inclined to say there's a little bit of debate among the scholars whether it was the same reading at the temple or two different ones one in the fourth year one in the fifth year i'm inclined to think that there were two separate ones but in some sense it doesn't really matter notice what they did verse nine they proclaimed a fast before the lord to all the people in jerusalem you see the babylonians at this point were conquering all the surrounding nations It was a scary time in the city of Jerusalem. And when people are scared, even if they're wicked, they say, listen, it can't be wrong for us to do something like this. You know, you think of a person who is clutching a Buddha in one hand and a rosary in the other hand. They're just covering all their bases, right? And and this is kind of the feel that we have here in Jerusalem. They called a fast and normally would say, praise the Lord, they're fasting under the Lord. This is a sign of repentance. Well, we don't have much indication that this was a repentance actually followed through on. It kind of seems to us more like the rosary in one hand, Buddha in the other hand kind of thing. That's what we're estimating here. In any regard, look at it here in verse 10. Baruch read from the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. He publicly read the words and he did it, verse 10, in the hearing of all the people. So he has a scroll. If I was better prepared tonight, I would have something like a scroll here. You know, a paper that's rolled up. And they would roll it out from side to side, uh, from one side to the other side. And they would unroll it. And it would be written in columns up and down on the scroll. You wouldn't read a scroll like this. We, We get this from watching old movies where the guy goes, hear ye, hear ye. And it's kind of a top and bottom scroll. It wasn't like that. It was a side-to-side scroll and the text would be written in columns. And so they would go, they would write it, they would roll the scroll and work it down as they read it. This is what Baruch did there on the Temple Mount. Now notice here verse 11. When Micaiah, the son of Gemara, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the book, then he went down to the king's house into the scribe's chamber. And there all the princes were sitting. Elashamah the scribe, Deliah the son of Shema, Elathan the son of Achbor, Gemar the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. Then Micaiah declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the book in the hearing of the people. Therefore all the princes sent Jehudi, the son of Nathaniah, the son of Shalama, the son of Cushai, to Baruch, saying, Take in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of all the people and come. So Baruch, the son of Nariah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, sit down and read it in our hearing. So Baruch read it in their hearing. You get the idea here? There weren't many notable leading men of Judah listening to Jeremiah on the Temple Mount. But there was one. His name was Micaiah. And as Micaiah heard the words of Jeremiah, he goes, this is God's word. We're in trouble The prophet's telling us that that, that God is angry with us. The prophet's telling us that we have to repent. The the prophet's telling us that that, that the Babylonians are going to come and pound us. And and we got to prepare for that. We can't trust in the Egyptians. We can't think that God's going to rescue us at the last minute unless we repent. This was a stern word from the Lord and it got Micaiah's attention. So Micaiah reported it back to his fellow noblemen, fellow princes there, you know, lesser nobility there in the kingdom. And he says, you guys got to hear this. They said, well, yeah, we got to hear it. Get Baruch over here and have him read it to us. So he came in their presence and he read it to them. Now verse 16. Now it happened when they had heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to another. And they said to Baruch, we will surely tell the king of all these words. And they asked Baruch saying, tell us now, how did you write all these words at his instruction? So Baruch answered them, he proclaimed it with his mouth, all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Then the princes said to Baruch, go and hide you and Jeremiah and let no one know where you are. Isn't that fascinating? Verse 16, when they heard Baruch read the book They looked with fear at one another. Can you see their white faces, the dumbfounded expressions on their face? They think two things. First of all, we are in such trouble. We are convicted of our sin. We understand it personally. We understand it in the kingdom. This is bad. They think that. But then number two, they realize... The king is not going to like this at all. We have to tell him. You can't not tell the king. Because if you don't tell the king these kind of things, eventually when he finds out, and he finds out that you knew, but you didn't tell him, it could be off with your head. They had to tell the king, but they knew this is not going to go down well with King Jehoiakim. So they said to Jeremiah and to Baruch, hide, run for the hills, do not, Make yourself visible. You need to find your way to a safe house when we tell the king what's going down. Now, I want you to notice something very interesting here in verse 18. It describes something about the writing of Scripture. We don't find that much in the Bible actually about the writing of Scripture, do we? But this is what we know. That Jeremiah himself did not actually put the pen to the parchment. He dictated it to a scribe. By the way, that was a common way of writing in Bible times, both Old Testament and New Testament. It was very common that the person who was the author would not actually write it with his hand. Sometimes he would, but often they would dictate it to a scribe. Some of Paul's letters were specifically written that way. We know, for example, the book of Romans, Romans 16, chapter, uh, chapter 16, verse 22, states how a man named Tertius was the penman for Paul's letter to the Roman Christians. So this was a practice. Jeremiah was the author, Baruch was the penman, but it's fascinating to see that these nobles of the kingdom of Judah, they wanted to know, are you the author or is Jeremiah the author? Why did they want to know this? I think they wanted to know, is this the word of God? We know Jeremiah. He has a reputation as the prophet of the Lord, bold, courageous, for 20 years. To be honest, Baruch, we don't know you. But we know Jeremiah. He is established as a prophet of the Lord. It made them feel better, so to speak, that it was Jeremiah's words and that Baruch was just the penman because it gave it more credibility. They told him, you go hide and we're gonna bring it to the king. All right, are you ready for this? Verses 20 and 21. And they went to the king into the court. But they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sent Jehudi to bring the scroll and he took it from Elishina the scribe's chamber. And Jehudi read it in the hearing of the king in the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. Do you have that scene in your mind? First they say, Let's tell the king about it, but without bringing the scroll. We'll hide the scroll. So they come and they say, uh, King Jehoiakim, we got to tell you about this guy, Jeremiah, and a scroll that he wrote and what he's been saying through his messenger, Baruch, up on the Temple Mount. And they explain it all. They go through and they explain it. They paraphrase. This is what he said. This is what he said. This is what he said. So what does Jeho- Jehoiakim do? He strokes his chin and he goes, you said there was a scroll, didn't you? I don't see the scroll. Where's the scroll? The guys look at each other nervously. Um, we can get it if you really want. Yeah, I want it. Go get it. So he gets it and he says, I want you to read it before me right here, right now. I don't want an explanation. I don't want to paraphrase. I want to hear it word for word right now. You ready for what happens? Verse 22. You gotta picture this. Let the movie run in your mind. Ready? Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning on the hearth before him. And it happened when Jehudi had read the three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire which was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid Nor did they tear their garments, the king or any of the servants who had heard these words. Nevertheless, Elnathan, Deliah, and Gomorrah implored the king not to burn the scroll, but he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jehameel, the king's son, Sarai, the son of Azrael, and Shalamea, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord hid them. Did you, just, did you just read what I read? Go back here to verse 22. Do you have the scene firmly in your mind? There he is in the winter house. It's the ninth month, so it's December. The, um, the weather in Jerusalem can be a lot like the weather here in California. December can be cool. It's probably not freezing cold. Occasionally, because Jerusalem is up high, you'll get some snow, but it can be cool. So there they are. They're in a, probably a warmer room or section of the palace. The implication is not that it was a separate palace, but a section in the palace, probably a floor that they used in the winter. There they are. You got the nice little thing burning there in the center of the room, right? And the king says, oh, good, good. Yehudi, read this scroll. Would you read the scroll for me? And he reads a column or two or three. And they say, oh Yehudi, would you just stop just for a moment here? Just pause. Uh, Can you hand me that scribe's knife? Now, scribes in those days would use a knife. It was a very sharp, small knife. And it was used for sharpening the reed that you would use to dip in ink and write on the parchment. But you would also have to make little trims to the parchment here and there. I mean, it was like made of leather or papyrus. So a scribe would have a small knife. And what did King Jehoiakim do? He said, would you pause just for a moment, Jehudi? He went over to the scroll and he would cut off the last two or three columns that he just read. Excuse me here, let me just cut this. He cuts it and then he puts it in the fire and burns it. It is difficult to think of a more deliberate, horrible insult to make to the prophet or more importantly to the God who inspired the prophet in his word. Because Jehoiakim did not say this, get this book out of here, I don't want to hear it. He didn't say that. Nor did he say, give me that scroll and just throw it into the Father. No, slowly, deliberately, methodically, to gain full attention and to drag it out as long as possible, he kept cutting and burning. Cutting and burning. Cutting and burning. How long do you think it went on? Half hour, 45 minutes? Everybody's just standing around watching. He cuts and he burns. He cuts and he burns. Notice there, verse 23, the king cut it with the scribe's knife. Ladies and gentlemen, when Jehoiakim wanted to show his spite for the word of God, the first thing he did was cut it. Before he burned it, he cut it. And people have not stopped cutting the word of God to this very day. Today... And I'm not saying it's only today, it's been throughout history, but it's certainly present today, maybe more than before, but today there are people who want to cut the Bible. They want to decide this is true and this is false. This really happened, this didn't happen. I know it says that there was an Adam and Eve, but there wasn't really an Adam and Eve. I know it says that Jesus walked on water, but he didn't really walk on water. I know it says this, but it didn't really happen. What are they doing? Just like Jehoiakim, they're getting out their knife and they're saying, let me cut. Some people want to decide what teaching from the Bible should be for our present age and what they believe we have progressed beyond. Oh yeah, look, I know that the Bible teaches this about sexual morality. I know the Bible teaches this about the way we should live. I know the Bible teaches this about homosexuality. Man, that's for it. We have progressed beyond it. Cut it. There are people who in our present age, they want to cut out the biblical authors and cut up the book so completely that the biblical authors have no connection or harmony between them. And so they say things like, and an esteemed professor, Professor Emeritus at Westmont College, who rightfully is an esteemed man, I don't know the man personally, but everything I've heard of him, he has a wonderful reputation in the community, a godly, wonderful man. He says that, I'm talking about Dr. Robert Gundry at Westmont College. He says that Matthew teaches that Peter was an apostate going to perdition. And if you try to say, well, no, but, but look, Luke... And, and Mark and John explain it differently. He goes, no, 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 you can't harmonize those. You have to take just what Matthew writes and, and you, can't, you can't let the other gospels inform it. Is this not cutting up the word of God? Is this not saying you gotta cut out Matthew and pretend it has nothing to do with Luke or John or Mark? That scribe's pen is still sharp That scribe's pen is still sharp when people say, let's cut out the part of the gifts and the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's cut out the part of repentance in the word of God today. Let's cut out the part about this. Let's cut out the part about that. Friends, people don't burn the word of God until they cut it up first. But then look at what he did. Verse 23, I'll read it to you again. The king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire. Again, let me emphasize, he took the sections that he cut, he did it methodically, he did it repeatedly, and he put them into the fire that heated the room. Can you smell the burning? We don't know if it was a a scroll made of papyrus or leather. I want to think it was made of leather, because think of how it would have smelled in that room. Think of how it would have flamed up if it was perfect. This wasn't just something to, to see. This was a little show here. And he did it again and again until the entire scroll had been worked through. This was a deliberate and a dramatic way to insult and to reject the prophet and the God whom the prophet represented. Jehoiakim hoped to burn and destroy the word and the prophet and his God. Now, I wonder if Jehoiakim thought this. Pure speculation, but I'll just wonder on it. Jehoiakim thought something like this. These aren't the words of God. These are the words of Jeremiah. I see Jeremiah's personality all over this. These can't be the words of God. Ladies and gentlemen, when God gave us his word, he used the personality of the human authors. You see the personality of Jeremiah. You see the personality of the Apostle John. You see the personality of Isaiah, of David, on and on. I could just keep listing biblical authors, but you get it. No, no, no. Just because God used a human author and their personality, when he brought us his word, he supernaturally governed those people and gave them a unique gift. He gave them the gift to perfectly understand his word and relate it to people today and for eternity. They were Jeremiah's words, but they were also God's words. And God was big enough to work through the words of Jeremiah. Now, the other thing that this shows us, King Jehoiakim was afraid of God's words. I mean, why didn't he just ignore it? Why didn't he just say, man, I got other things to do. Why didn't he just just usher them out of the room? No, he didn't only hold the word of God in contempt and he couldn't bear to simply ignore it. No, he hoped to destroy the power of the word of God by destroying the scroll. And let me tell you, it was not going to work because his blasphemous and ignorant act fail to see the difference between the living, eternal Word of God and the media for that Word. I got a Bible here. It's kind of a nice Bible. It was given to me as a gift. Nice Bible. If, God forbid, somebody would burn this Bible, it wouldn't destroy the Word of God. It would destroy the ink on these pages. But the Word of God stands forever. Forever. You can't destroy the word of God by burning the thing that it's written upon because this is what the Bible says. It says that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. If it is the word of God, it can't be destroyed. Give it your best shot, Jehoiakim. God's word is going to stand forever. In the year 300 A.D., The Roman Emperor Diocletian ordered every Bible burned and they destroyed thousands of Bibles and scripture portions all over the Roman Empire because the Roman Emperor directly decreed in one of the worst persecutions that Christians in the Roman Empire ever suffered, he said, I want every Bible burned, every piece of scripture, I want it destroyed. You know what happened? Diocletian died and the next Roman Emperor said, Let's present 50 complete Bibles at government expense. Diocletian, you lost, the Word of God won. Early in the 20th century, there was an Armenian man who was a patient in an American hospital in Turkey. And he was given a Bible, which was the first Bible that he had ever possessed. And when he left the hospital, he very proudly took that Bible back to his village and he showed it to his friends. A Muslim teacher snatched the Bible from him, tore it up in pieces. You know, he tore the binding, you know, just like you would tear the binding, right like that. And he threw the pages in the street, walked away. Well, there was a grocer in town who used to use little pieces of paper to wrap up fruit and little groceries. He goes, man, that's a lot of paper to wrap stuff up in. So he grabs up all the pieces of paper from the Torah Bible. He takes it to his grocery store and he doesn't read it. But he just uses it to wrap an apple or wrap a can or wrap whatever. Soon, the pages of that Bible were scattered all over the entire village and customers read the pages and asked for more. Sometime later, a Bible seller came into the vision and he was amazed to find a hundred people eager to buy a Bible because that Muslim teacher decided he was going to rip it up in the street or I could give you an even better story that I heard or read actually from Rabbi Zacharias. He tells a story of a Vietnamese Christian named Hein Pham, who was his interpreter. And Hein, being a Christian and a translator, not only for missionaries, but also a translator for the American military forces, he was arrested when South Vietnam fell to the communists. Now when he was in that prison camp, his faith was really shaken by the terrible conditions, by the social pressure and the heavy propaganda placed upon him. And even though he went in there, a Christian, his faith was shaken. And he decided one night, it's a lie. It's all a lie. I can't believe this anymore. God, I am never again gonna pray. I'm never again gonna seek Jesus. I'm done with this. He decided that one night in his prison cell. The next day, they gave him the worst job in the entire camp, he was given the job of cleaning out the latrines. And he was commanded to uh, to clean out a tin can that was overflowing with toilet paper. And his eye caught what appeared to be English writing on one of the pieces of toilet paper. So he quickly grabbed it and put it in his pocket. Later off, he cleaned it off. And that night when everybody else in his little barracks had gone to sleep, he took it out and by the faintest light he could imagine, he read it. Because he could read English, being a translator. It was Romans chapter 8. And he read the words, all things work together for, though, for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. He read the words, For I am persuaded that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The man began to cry knowing that this was God's word for him having decided just the previous night that he was going to completely give up on God. So the prison official who thought that the Bible was only fit for toilet paper They were probably surprised when the next day he volunteered for latrine duty. (laughs) And he would gather as much of it as he can, carefully clean it, distribute it the best he can. And that prison official who meant to disgrace the word of God in the most extreme way, he ended up rescuing the faith of a troubled believer right there in the camp and leading who knows how many other to faith. Ladies and gentlemen, the word of God stands forever. Forever. And people can cut it, and they can burn it, but it will be to their own difficulty and shame, not to the problem of the word of God. Let me read to you something from G. Campbell Morgan. He said this. Sin may so deaden spiritual and moral faculties that men will without fear cast the messages of God to the fire and commit his messengers to death. But such action never destroys the word of God nor invalidates its findings. Amen. Now notice this, verse 24 says that when they did this, the other people who were watching King Jehoiakim do this, it says they they were not afraid nor did they tear their garments. Friends, it's a little bit heavy. Because not only is it a terrible thing to cut and burn God's word. It's also a terrible thing to stand by silently and to express no horror when it's happening right there in your midst. God had a condemnation for those people right there. Who we're like, yeah, whatever, man. No biggie. He's the king. You do whatever you want. You can't go against the king. I mean, look, he's the king. Maybe they thought, well, I'd never do such a thing. Personally, I wouldn't cut or burn God's word, but man, he's a king, he can do what he wants. No, God, God said that it's a responsibility of God's people to do something, at least show some disapproval. Now, some did, thank God. Verse 25, nevertheless, Elnathan, Deliah, and Gemara implored the king not to burn the scroll. There are at least some who said something to the king. Yet Jehoiakim ignored them and commanded that Baruch... And Jeremiah be arrested, but verse 26, the Lord hid them. Now continuing on, verse 27. Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, take yet another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And you shall say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, thus says the Lord, you have burned the scroll saying, why have you written in it that with the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause man and beast to cease from here. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and to the frost of the night. I will punish him, his family, and his servants for their iniquity and I will bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I have pronounced against them but they did not heed. In this beautiful verse 28, take yet another scroll and write on it all the former words. Oh, Jehoiakim, ooh, ow, you burned the scroll, big deal, we'll make another. You're not gonna defeat God's word. Matter of fact, we'll make another one and we'll add more words to it. And what's gonna happen to you? Verse 30, his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. And even so, verse 31, all the doom that I have pronounced against them will come to pass. All the doom. I wonder, I wonder if this was the act that set it in stone that Judah and Jerusalem would be judged. At this point, The final conquest of Jerusalem is about 17 years away. It doesn't happen for 17 years. But I wonder if this was the point that set it in motion where God said, you're going to burn, you're going to cut and burn my word, and nobody's going to say a peep about it. That's it. I will certainly bring the doom that I prophesied. Verse 32, then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And besides, there were added to them many similar words. Are you gonna burn my scroll? I'm gonna make another scroll, a bigger scroll. That's how God works. Now chapter 37, this happened some 15 years after the events of the previous chapter, verse one. Now King Zedekiah the son of Josiah, reigned instead of Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land gave heed to the words of the Lord, which he spoke by the prophet Jeremiah. Now notice this, verse 1 says that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made Zedekiah king. When Nebuchadnezzar came, he saw that Jeconiah, or sometimes called Kaniah, was being unfaithful. He deposed him right away and he put in place a puppet king, Zedekiah, who was a descendant of the previous king, Josiah. Going on now, verse three. And Zedekiah the king sent Jehuchal, the son of Shalmai. Can somebody give me a little bit of a break with the names this chapter? Good heavens. Man. Uh, Keep going here, verse three. And Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest, to the prophet Jeremiah, saying... Pray now to the Lord our God for us. Now Jeremiah was coming and going among the people for they had not yet put him in prison. Then Pharaoh's army came up from Egypt and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news of them, they departed from Jerusalem. We talked about this last week. But notice what happens here. Before the Egyptians came against the Babylonians, while the Babylonians were surrounding the city, what happens in verse 3? Notice what King Zedekiah says to Jeremiah. Pray now to the Lord our God for us. Please, Jeremiah. I haven't served God or honored him my whole life, but the Babylonians are surrounding the city now. I've never been a religious man. I haven't honored Yahweh, the God of Israel, but would you please pray for us? Pray for us because we're hurting, we're in trouble, we're going down. I don't know what Jeremiah said to him. It doesn't really say, does it? But this is what it says happens next. The Egyptians came up from the south to engage the Babylonians in battle. The Babylonians said, we got to break off the siege of Jerusalem. They went down to meet the Egyptians in battle. And so the siege was broken. Everybody said, praise the Lord, we're delivered. We talked about this last week. The siege was broken and they thought they were delivered. But look at the news here, verse six. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, thus you shall say to the king of Judah who sent you to me to inquire of me, behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come up to help you, will return to Egypt to their own land. The Chaldeans shall come back and fight against the city and take it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves saying the Chaldeans will surely depart from us for they will not depart. For though you had defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans who fight against you and there remain only wounded men among them, they would rise up every man in his tent and burn the city with fire. Uh, here's the story. Uh, Zedekiah, yeah, the Babylonian army left. The siege is broken. Here's the bad news. They're coming back. The Egyptians are not gonna fight against them. Matter of fact, the Egyptians did not fight against them. When the Babylonians assembled in battle against the Egyptians, Pharaoh said, Check, please. He went home. He didn't even engage the Babylonians in battle. The Babylonians said, Back to Jerusalem. Let's finish off this siege. What Jeremiah said to Zedekiah was basically this It's going to happen. Don't be fooled by the fact that this siege was broken for a few weeks. The Babylonians are coming back, and it is so certain that they will conquer Jerusalem. Look at the way that they stated there in verse 10. If there remained only wounded men among them, they would rise up and conquer the city. Zedekiah, I don't care if if the whole Babylonian army was wounded and sick and impaired. They would conquer the city. God is so committed to bringing this judgment upon Jerusalem. Continuing on now, verse 11. And it happened when the army of the Chaldeans left the siege of the Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's army that Jeremiah went out of Jerusalem to go into the land of Benjamin to claim his property there among the people. And when he was in the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard was there whose name was Irzah, the son of Shalamiah, the son of Hananiah, and he sees Jeremiah the prophet saying, you are defecting to the Chaldeans. Then Jeremiah said, false. I am not defecting to the Chaldeans. But he did not listen to him. So Erijah seized Jeremiah and brought him to the princes. Therefore, the princes were angry with Jeremiah, and they struck him and put him in the prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for they had made that prison. The siege is broken, at least for a few weeks. Jeremiah says, hey, a couple chapters ago, I bought a piece of property. Remember the property purchased from prison? He said, I, I should go take a look at it. So he goes out and he's going to go to his village of Ananoth, which is not far from Jerusalem. He goes out, and as he's going out, he gets arrested for being a defector to the Babylonians, to the Chaldeans. Now, friends, I want you to understand this is not as crazy as it might seem. Jeremiah had urged other people to desert to the Babylonians, Jeremiah had been crushing the morale of the people of Jerusalem. Anybody who was committed to fight, he goes, You're going to lose. Surrender now to the Babylonians. It was a message of certain victory for the Babylonians. You could see where they would think that he was a traitor. So what did they do? Verse 15, they struck him, they beat him, and they put him in the prison. prison. Verse 16, when Jeremiah entered the dungeon and the cells, and Jeremiah had remained there many days, then Zedekiah the king sent and took him out the king asked him secretly in his house and said, is there any word from the Lord? Jeremiah said, there is. Then he said, you shall be delivered into the hand of the Babylonians. Oh, what a scene. I'd pay money to see this. Jeremiah is there in a prison. And as we're going to find out, this was a pretty wretched dungeon. A wretched dungeon that Jeremiah thought, if I stay here much longer, I'm not gonna live. Disease, filth, malnutrition, who knows what else. Maybe scary other prisoners, I don't know what it was. But Jeremiah said, I'm not lasting long in here. Then one day a guard comes and says, Jeremiah, come here. The king wants to see you. Jeremiah's saying, Oh man, it's off with my head. He goes, and he's not going to like the courtyard or the stockade. He's going to the king's palace. He goes in the king's palace, they clean him up a little bit, obviously. They take him in, they sit him down in the room. The king comes in, tells all his assistants, leave the room, leave the room, me and Jeremiah, just us. They kind of nervously leave the room. Do you want to leave the king alone with a crazy prophet? The king leans in to Jeremiah and he asked him secretly. Did you see that in verse 17? The king asked him secretly, is there any word from the Lord? Jeremiah says, yeah, you know, King, it's really funny. I got a word from the Lord for you. Verse 17, you shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. King, I got a word for you. It's exactly everything I've been saying for the last 30 years. There's nothing new. You want a secret revelation? Here's a secret revelation. I could show you it written on a scroll. Here it is, king. You thought that God had some privilege, unique word for you? No, here's the word. Go back to what was written. Zedekiah made the mistake of thinking that there was a secret word for him from God different from what had already been revealed in God's word. Even his written word from Jeremiah. The secret word was completely consistent with the written word. Now notice this. God may, and he has in my life, maybe in many of your lives, brought to me a specific word. I would call it a prophetic word. God gave me a word of prophecy about my life, about something in the future. But you know what's interesting? These, like, pivotal words that God spoke to me, they never came when I was seeking a secret word from God. I would say this. I'm still thinking this through in my mind, but let me just say it in general. Don't seek a secret word from God. He may bring you a personal word. God is fully capable of doing that. He's done it in my life, and he may do it in yours. He's fully capable of doing it. Praise the Lord for that. Praise God for that work of the Holy Spirit. But if you're going to seek a word from God, open the book. Don't seek it in a strange way. Now, I think that when you open the book, God will speak to you. And maybe if you need a spontaneous, specific, prophetic word for your life, God knows how to deliver it to you. He knows exactly what to do. But I just find it fascinating. When Zedekiah was seeking a secret word, Jeremiah told him, what he had already known. Verse 18. Moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, What offense have I committed against you, against your servants, or against this people that you have put me in prison? Where now are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying, The king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land? Therefore, please hear now, O my lord the king. Please let my petition be accepted before you and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe lest I die there. Then Zedekiah the king commanded that they should commit Jeremiah to the court of the prison and that they should give him daily a piece of bread from the baker street until all the bread in the city was gone. Thus Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. Jeremiah directly but very personally appealed... To the king, king, give me a break. I'm going to die in that prison. If you're going to imprison me, put me in a nicer prison. And the king said, yeah. He did not want the death of that prophet on his hands. And at least until the siege came and got really bad, he said, I'm going to give you bread every day. Jeremiah asked that his lot, even in persecution, be made better. And friends, I want you to understand something. In a time of persecution, the persecuted one and others can and should do all that they can to make the condition of that one better. I think of our dear brother Saeed, who's in a prison right now in Iran. I suppose that there are probably some hyper-spiritual people who would say, take the worst treatment, Saeed, Boy, if they want to put you in the worst cell and give you the worst treatment, bear it up, you know, bring it on. Are you kidding? Jeremiah gives us a pattern. If Saeed could honorably appeal for better treatment, he should do it. If others could make the appeal on his behalf, they should do it. God teaches us in his word that you don't have to deliberately put yourself in the target for persecution. It may find you whether nevertheless. But notice, it was completely honorable for Jeremiah to say, Zedekiah, would you give me a break? And God worked in and through that. And you could even say that Zedekiah did something a little right. It didn't spare him the judgment of God, but maybe it lessened it. At least Zedekiah did not die a horrible death. He faced God's judgment in a very severe way, no doubt about it. But he didn't die a horrible death like Jehoiakim, the the king that we took a look at in chapter 36, did. Friends, um, I I think a, a great way for us to conclude tonight is to think about how we need to honor God's word. We don't cut it. We don't burn it. We honor it. But especially, shouldn't we pray for our brother Saeed and others whom he kind of represents who are in prison? Father, I don't know how many it is around the world. I don't know if it's numbered in the hundreds. Maybe, Lord, it's numbered in the thousands of believers who are imprisoned because they're faithful unto Jesus Christ. Lord, we think about the terrible conditions that many of them have. The danger, the disease, the deprivation that they face. Lord, we think specifically of our brother Saeed. And we think, Lord, of all that he must ache for, Lord. Just, just the separation from his family would be difficult enough. Jesus, we pray for Saeed, but not only for him. We pray for him as a representative of Christians all over the world who are imprisoned for their faith. And we ask that you would show them mercy. We pray, God, that you would improve their conditions. Even if they're going to be incarcerated, Lord, let it be a Jeremiah moment where they're put into a better place and have better provision made for them. But beyond that, Lord, we pray, let them be freed. Let them be spared this and strengthen them. And Lord, if you're going to have them in those prisons, let them be powerhouses of your work there and lead many to faith. Lord, um, here in the West, you have not called us as of yet to suffer in such ways. We see, Lord, that one day it may come. We pray that you would give us the courage of our faithful brothers and sisters who have gone before us in those ways. But Lord, now we just want to stand with those who pay that price and cry out to you, Lord, and say, bless them, strengthen them. We pray this, Lord, together in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.